Blog Talk Radio. Aggravated again. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict, count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oath do find the defendant as to count one, first degree murder, guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. I've been running trying to up in my mind. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. And this is episode 12, State of Texas versus Lester Leroy Bauer Jr. Tonight we're talking about the 1983 murders of Bob Tate, Jerry Brown, Randall Mays, and Philip Good in Tate's ultralight hangar in Sherman, Texas. Initially, police pursued rumors circulating that the murders were the result of a drug deal gone wrong. In January 1984, Phone records from a business calling card issued to Bauer provided the first break in the case. A search of Bauer's home revealed that he was in possession of tubing used in ultralight aircraft, decals that are normally found on ultralight aircraft, and ultralight tires with the name Tate scratched onto them. Also, Jerry Brown's fingerprints were found on pieces of tubing. Bauer's lies to investigators sealed his fate and in 1984, he was convicted of four counts of capital murder and sentenced to death. We'll talk about the evidence admitted at Bauer's trial, his direct appeals and post-conviction claims, and his efforts to prove that he was actually innocent of the murders. Good evening and welcome. <laughs> okay. Lisa, you were you unmuted the whole time for some other reason. <laughs> Oh, okay. All right. I was thinking, oh, no, I said all that for nothing. Can't can't go wrong with lies, but uh, definitely, yeah. And and the shame is we're recording this. Right. (laughs) So uh, we'll talk about the evidence submitted, Bauer's trial, his direct appeals, conviction claims, and his efforts to prove that he's actually innocent of the murders. All right. Good evening, Michael. Um, That's a program note. This is today is Saturday, May fifteenth, twenty twenty one. Due to circumstances during the week of the tenth, clearing convincing was initially postponed from Tuesday to Wednesday and then canceled on Wednesday. To avoid losing a week, Michael and I decided to record this episode and we'll air it on Tuesday, 
June 1st, 2021, which will give Michael and me the night off during Memorial Day week. So that's where we stand. And um, sorry for the, the flub on blog talk making me think I said all that for nothing. Yeah, no, it's all good. Uh, one thing I will say, we will take a word. I'm getting feedback again. Um, definitely glad to be talking about this. You sent me a wealth of information on this guy, um, including, you know, death penalty info, uh, the Intercept, which uh, is a which has an article by Jordan Smith that was written back in 2015, and I actually looked up the Murderpedia for him, so I definitely can't wait to uh, delve into this. Yeah. So, I, I, I but I think you're going to be surprised because there's information you're going to learn about from me that wasn't included in any of that material. Right. Um. So I don't know that you'll necessarily be surprised. You've known me long enough to know that that's how I usually roll. Well, I know that a lot of this. I know a lot of this uh, usually ends up, it's kind of funny. I can sit here and watch it just get taken down one by one. So it's always fun. So, all right. Well, let's start off. I don't have a lot of information. These murders occurred. In uh, on October eighth, nineteen eighty three, and so there isn't a lot of information on the internet about uh, Bauer or the victims. I don't know really anything about Bauer's uh, early life, other than the fact that he apparently had a felt a relatively stable early life because at his trial, no evidence was put on by his attorney. And no evidence was ever offered in post-conviction that he had abuse or addiction in his family or any any problems in his family that made his life more challenging than than some. Right. Um, Which I mean, apparently he I, lived a blessed life, just based upon the the crime we're meant to discuss. Yeah. Um, you know, he he led a pretty exemplary life. I think he was a Boy Scout or an Eagle Scout or whatever. Um, he worked for a chemical company in Colorado. But sometime in 92, in 1982, and I remember this, this time, um, the oil industry was beginning to tank. And uh-huh. so a lot of places and a lot of industries lost money and that, led them to cut jobs. Right. And uh, Bauer's job in Colorado was one of the jobs that was cut. Now, he was a graduate, a college graduate. Um, I think he had some kind of degree in chemistry. I'm not sure. Um, And he worked as, I'm not sure what his job was in Colorado, But when he was rehired as a salesman and he was moved to Dallas and was working in the Dallas area, he apparently wasn't happy because where his job performance in Colorado was exemplary, his job performance in Texas was not. Okay, really? Well, that's interesting to me because this all happened after he became a uh, chemical salesman. So. I would assume I would have assumed that he was a pretty successful chemical salesman. 
uh, just based on the fact that he was, you know, at an aircraft hangar and doing all this stuff. Well, that, again, that's something that is not really enlightened. I don't know that he was necessarily doing well as a salesman Uh because the testimony of his trial from his employer was that he was not a good employee since being rehired. And I don't know whether that was a, a sales issue, not making sales, not meeting his goals or whether it was not working when he was supposed to be working, not Uh working long enough. You know, I don't know what the issues were. I do know his employer said he was no longer a satisfactory employee. Um, And apparently the hobbies that he pursued when he lived in Colorado were not ones that he could pursue in Dallas, Texas, or they lived in the Arlington, Texas area, which is actually, I think, in Tarrant County. Um, Dallas, Fort Worth area, you have Dallas and Dallas County and Fort Worth and Tarrant County, and Arlington is kind of uh, a suburb of the Fort Worth area. So. Uh-huh. In trying to find a new hobby, he apparently became obsessed with ultralight aircraft. However, he was apparently a very big guy. He was a very tall guy, I think over six feet, and he weighed over 200 pounds. Well, and Lisa, I'll be completely blunt with you. The reason why I assumed he was successful was because you don't get into a hobby like that unless you've got some money. You know what I mean? So that's where I Yeah, but he – Initially, his his interest in the in the thing was reading magazines about oh, ultralight okay. aircraft and okay. dreaming about having an ultralight aircraft. Okay, I get so you. he he didn't actually have an ultralight aircraft. His wife said he couldn't have an ultralight aircraft because, in her mind, his tall. 200-pound body in an ultralight aircraft was going to go badly very quickly. Right, absolutely. Uh, Even though he had apparently spoken to people who said, oh, no, an ultralight aircraft can handle a guy your size. Uh, Because apparently ultralight aircraft are like lawnmower engines with wings and, um, and, you know, bicycle tires or not even bicycle tires, uh, wheelbarrow tires. I'll show you essentially. So, you know, I don't know if you've seen a picture, but I can send you a picture on Facebook real quick. It, it, if he was a heavy guy, it would. it's hard looking at the cockpits of even the ones that do have cockpits. It's hard for me to imagine him squeezing into one. Like it's about half the size of a Cessna cockpit, if you can imagine what a Cessna is. And a Cessna is pretty small. Okay. And another thing that he had apparently become interested in based on some of the books was he had become interested in guns, ammunition, and killing people. Damn. So, um, you know, I I, I guess he didn't really like Texas as much as he thought he did. (laughs) I guess Uh, not. And I I don't think he was a – 
he was a re- relatively intelligent man, but I don't think he was a really insightful one. Right. And by the way, I just sent you a picture. Okay, thanks. So, no um, okay, yeah. I, I meant to post a picture of one on – I meant to post a picture of actually the one that he stole, but I I think I forgot to link it. I so, mean, anyway – they do have some with cockpits, but even the cockpit, like, it's not much bigger than that. So, yeah, I would have a hard time seeing Bauer get into one of these. Right. So, um, anyway, so he was reading a magazine for ultralight aficionados called Glider Rider. And in okay. one of those editions, he saw an ad for an ultralight being sold. Now, Philip Good, uh, Philip Good, I believe, was a deputy sheriff with Grayson County. Randall, my understanding is Randall Mays was a, or either Randall Mays or Jerry Brown, I'm not sure which one, was a former police officer. Uh huh. And um, Good, Bob Tate, and Brown were all ultralight aficionados, the ultralight hobbyists, whatever you want to call it. So uh, Philip Good had been helping people sell ultralight aircraft, and so Bob Tate said, hey, I got an ultralight aircraft. I want to sell it. Why don't you take care of that for me? And Philip Good did. Um, So Bob Tate contacted Good, who was kind of the middleman, and they talked about the pl- airplane, and then uh, Bauer went out to Sherman, Texas, which is I think like an hour and a half, two-hour drive from Arlington. Um, why don't you look on a map of where between Arlington and Sherman? Because I didn't do that. Um, hold on. <laughs> The distance between the two? The distance and like, you know, where is Sherman in relation? Is it north? Is it south? Is it east? Is it west? Hold on. It is um, north of, of our metro area. It is 83.7 okay. miles and an hour and 17 minute drive. Okay. In today's yeah. standards. In today's standard. 1983. I, I lived in Euless, Texas, went to school in Irving, and had a friend that lived in Springtown uh, in 1982. Right. So I was living in that area about a year before these murders happened. Um, I came back to Louisiana in January of 83. Um, so uh, so Bob uh, Bauer met with Good in Sherman. Uh, a witness from a fruit stand testified about this meeting, placing Bauer irrefutably in Sherman, Texas with Philip Good. Keep that in mind for later. So on October 8th, 1983, uh, Bauer lied to his wife about going bow hunting. And I say he lied to his wife about going bow hunting because with what happened later in the day, um, he wasn't bow hunting. Uh, 
Philip Good told his wife that he and Tate were meeting with a Dallas buyer of Tate's ultralight plane. And then he left the house. He told his wife he'd be home in the evening or he would be home, you know, later in the evening, later in the afternoon. Uh, Sometime in mid-afternoon or late afternoon, Good's wife actually went out to the hangar, but it was locked. So she figured everybody was just, you know, off. Maybe they were showing the guy the plane, and she left. Uh, Didn't detect anything amiss. Um, And then it was later that evening that Tate's wife and son went to the hangar because Tate hadn't gotten home. Tate's truck was there, and there were two other vehicles there. And when his wife got the key out of his truck and unlocked the hangar, they found Randall May's body in the doorway. Now, apparently, during that day, Mays and Brown had been at another location working on another plane another ultralight Mm -hmm. and something brought them to the hangar. Um, Bauer never confessed. And so we don't know exactly what happened or what sequence it happened in, but what was found when police came was maze inside the door and he had been shot four times. Um, one, including once in the back of the head, which was the kill shot. Tate, Good, and Brown were in the hangar and hidden under a carpet. And there was a table with Tate's blood on it that looked as though Tate had been shot in the back of the head while he sat at the table. Uh huh. Speculating here because we don't know because Bauer never never enlightened Invented us. Right. Um, what probably happened was Good left Tate and Bauer to make the deal. Uh-huh. There was a claim that Bauer admitted to having left a business card with an IOU for $1,500, and a business card of some sort was found in Tate's pocket but the business card was lost, so we don't know for sure what it said. Uh, Bauer also later claimed to have paid Tate $3,000 for the ultralight. However, $3,000 was not found at the scene. Um, So speculating, good left Tate, Tate and Bauer are negotiating. Um, Tate sits down at the table. Bauer gets up, pops him in the back of the head, hides his body. Mm-hmm. Bauer is taking the ultralight apart to transport it. Good okay. comes back to see how things are going. And Bauer pops him in the head hides his body. Later, mm-hmm. Mays, and Ta- uh, Mays and Brown arrive, and apparently Bauer gets them to help him finish taking down the plane and probably helping him load it into his vehicle. Huh. 
And then he pops Brown in the back of the head. Mays realizes, holy shit, what's going on? And then Bauer chases Mays around for a little while. Uh Uh-huh. Finally shooting him four times and killing him, but having to leave his body in the doorway because he's probably realized he's made too much noise and somebody's going to see. So he leaves. And, you know, there there were no witnesses really placing Bauer at the hangar. Hmm. Okay. Um, nobody there alive. were no witnesses. Yeah, nobody alive, at least, p- placing Bauer at the hangar. Uh, but we know, you know, Jerry Brown h- handled some of the uh, hang- the ultralight tubing because his fingerprints were found on it. Uh-huh. Um, so the other thing police found was the ultralight plane was missing. Uh, while they may have found the card with the IOU, they didn't find three thousand um, dollars. There were initial rumors in town about gambling, drug dealing, criminal activity by one or all of the victims. Uh, I think Bob Tate was the primary uh, criminal, according to all the rumors. But there was never any evidence found that corroborated any of those rumors. Um, you know, in investigating Bob Tate, they didn't find that he had sources of income that weren't explained by real estate business, a job, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. Um, they didn't find any evidence of drugs in the hangar. They didn't find any evidence of drug dealing in the hangar. Um, Now, during the investigation or initially in the investigation, the sheriff of Grayson County did request assistance from the local FBI office, probably because he had a quadruple murder. Uh, It involved an ultralight airplane. Uh, It may have involved some violation of some federal law. Uh, And, you know, if there were rumors about drug dealing between Texas and Oklahoma, he may have suspected that it was possible that the perpetrators of the crime were from Oklahoma. I mean, how far is Sherman from from Oklahoma? Right. So, um, but he did invite the FBI in. And, of course, in most cases when there's a small town and there's a murder, the law enforcement is neglected. They don't invite the FBI to come help. But in this case, they did something wrong by inviting the FBI. Because as you heard on, you know, the execution watch, um, nobody understands why the FBI was involved. It's a mystery. It's a question that's unanswered. Well, you know, the sheriff asked them. And if you read a news article, you would have known that. Because the sheriff in articles was not, you know, was not shy about saying, I invited the FBI in because we needed their help. Right. So um, the investigation kind of goes along without really any leads until January when phone records link calls to good charged on a corporate calling card. You're too young to remember this, and probably most, a lot of the listeners are too young to remember this. Uh, back in the day, we used landlines. 
Oh, I'm not too and young for example, landlines. Come on now. When I when I listen, yeah, but you've never used a calling card. No, I'll actually, bet. I did in basic training, but yeah, that's the only. Time. Oh, okay, okay. Because like when I lived in Texas, a call from Ulysses to Dallas was long distance. Yeah, no, I don't think, I, I mean, when I was probably extremely young, it was probably crazy like that, but I don't remember long distance being crazy. I remember hear, hearing people complain about long distance calling uh-huh. and stuff like that, but, you know, right. now that, you so, know, I mean, my actual memories of it, I don't remember anything like that. And um, it, if the, if Sherman, Texas was one area code and Arlington was a was another Arlington I think was eight one seven. Um if Sherman was in the two two fourteen or in some other area code, it was gonna be long distance. Right. So it's a corporate calling card, they go to the company, they find out the calling card was assigned to Lester Bauer and they interview him. And mm-hmm. what he does basically is what sealed his fate. But caveat, if you didn't do anything wrong and you're innocent, there's no reason to ever lie to law enforcement. And there's especially no reason to lie to law enforcement if you've led the exemplary life that Lester Bauer claims to have led. But he lied about having contact with the victims. He lied about putting charges on the calling card. Uh, he lied about going to the hangar. He lied about meeting with Philip Good. And unfortunately, the FBI agents and the Texas Rangers and the uh, and the investigators saw through the lies. Um, so at some point, they went to Bauer's house after interviewing Bauer, they wanted to talk to his wife, part of the investigation. When they're approaching his house, there's a garage, and one of the FBI agents goes up to the garage window, and he looks in, and he sees aluminum tubing, which is consistent with what they use on the ultralight aircraft. Right. they talk to the wife, and I think they get the bow hunting story, and they get uh, – I, I think that another problem was that the story Bauer told time-wise did not line up with the story his wife told time-wise. Okay. So like, they didn't get the he story. He said he got right? home earlier, and she said he got home at a later time. So okay. based on the false statements, they probably had information from the uh, – it probably went back to the fruit stand lady, and she said, yeah, that's the guy that was here. Um, they got a search warrant for Bauer's house and garage uh-huh. and vehicles, and they found the tubing. They found tires with tape scratched on the rims. They found decals and remnants of decals that are used on ultralight aircraft. Uh, specifically decals used by the company that constructed the ultralight aircraft belonging to Bob Tate. Um, They found a sledgehammer with residue from aluminum tubing. 
they found other residue from other parts and pieces of ultralight aircraft. And I think they found some parts that had been destroyed. Um, they also found blood on shoes and a bag belonging to Bauer. And then the P.S. de Resistance was Brown's fingerprints on some of the tubing. Shortly after that, Lester Bauer was arrested and charged with four counts of capital murder. Which it was capital murder. Multiple victims would have made it capital murder, I think, in and of itself, but also based on the theft of the ultralight aircraft. Um, Bauer, through his in-laws, was able to hire a private attorney. And then um, he went to trial, and his trial started actually in, I think, April, early April of 1984. He was arrested in January of 1984. That seems really, really quick for a lot of people. But at the time, Texas had a Speedy Trial Act that was somewhat more anti-prosecution than the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Um, And so basically, uh, Bauer's attorney also made the decision to go ahead and push the prosecution to go to trial quickly rather than getting continuances that would give the prosecution more time to prepare its case. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a basically a strategy. Uh, interestingly enough, that law, as it existed at the time of Bauer's trial, was ruled unconstitutional in 1987 for violating separation of powers. So basically the reason it was found to be unconstitutional was not that it harmed defendants, but that it put prosecutors into a position that deprived them of their discretion. So it was ruled unconstitutional, and the Texas legislature redrafted it and probably um, crafted it more closely with the Sixth Amendment Speedy Trial Act in the U.S. Constitution. So the prosecution had... um, Actually, quite a bit of circumstantial evidence, but pretty strong circumstantial evidence against Bauer. Um, First of all, casings found at the scene showed that the ammunition used in the murders was 22 caliber, and it was a relatively uncommon ammunition. It was made by someone by the name of Julio Biocchi. Oh, okay. It was available through one dealer in the United States. It was not sold at retail outlets like Walmart or sporting goods stores. You basically ordered it from the dealer in the United States. Um, and ammunition found in Bauer's home was Julio Fiocchi, and he actually ordered, I think, two or three boxes before the murders. 
Um, he, okay. of course, had the contact. The, the contact was good that he lied about. Um, some would say, oh, well, you know, he was convicted for being a liar. But no, he was convicted because he lied about things that were material to the question of his guilt or innocence. Um, contact with the victims, that's material. And he lied about it. He Instead of saying, yeah, I talked to Good, and I was going to buy the, the ultralight, but I changed my mind the last minute and didn't go out there on the 8th, right. he might have gotten away with it. Because there was no evidence placing him at the hangar. But right. he lied. He said, I talked to him once, and then I changed my mind and never talked to him again. Huh. Whereas wow. they have multiple phone calls and the, you know, fruit stand lady who says, no, he was here, was good. Um, oh. Then um, there was also the fact that good and I think Tate had each said they were meeting with a buyer from Dallas on mm-hmm. Saturday the 8th of October. Um, so that was, you know, that was at the hangar. Um the two ultralight tires and rims that had the name Tate scratched in them, that's, he, you know, he possesses part of that ultralight aircraft um, that has Tate's name on it. I mean, that's the strong circumstances because how, how do you get those tires if you weren't there and you didn't steal that ultralight? True. Exactly. You know, riddle me that, how Batman. How else would we receive those? Yeah. Um, then the un, uh, unidentified blood stains on his boots and travel bag, basically testing on those stains in 1983 could show that they were human, but couldn't tell anything else about type or, or anything beyond that they were human. Right. Um, he also had the other ultralight aircraft materials discovered in the garage fingerprints on some of the tubing. So once again, how do you have tubing with Brown's fingerprints on it if you didn't go out there and didn't buy that plane? Um, And he also possessed a receipt for a silencer for a 22 caliber weapon. Um, While on execution watch, they said something about the Allen wrench the Allen wrench was never once mentioned in any of the court opinions. Huh. Okay. Um, so, and then also numerous magazine articles were found within Bowers' home related to the commission of murders. And finally, in the days preceding the murders, Bauer went to a shooting range and practiced firing the 22 caliber ammunition for about 15 minutes. So those are 10 pieces of circumstantial evidence. And individually, yes, one piece doesn't prove anything. But when you put it all together. Yeah, but that's some pretty damn strong circumstantial, especially having the tires. The tires is the one. The tires and the tubing with the victim's fingerprints on it. Right. Right. Those are the two strongest pieces of information. Um. The defense was basically uh, time and proximity, 
So they had statements and testimony that basically said Bauer could not have been in Sherman that day because he was in these other places at these other times. Uh Um, And we don't know exactly what time the murders occurred, although I think the theory was about sometime between four and five. Um, And then there was no direct evidence linking Bauer. There was no uh, fingerprints or forensic evidence in the hangar that linked him. And there were no eyewitnesses placing him at the hangar on that day. Um, The verdict, the jury wasn't out for very long. They didn't deliberate for long. And they basically found Bauer guilty of four Mm -hmm. counts of capital murder. And then there was a punishment trial. Um, The state didn't put on any additional evidence, um, but the defense put on witnesses to to attest to, you know, Bauer's good character, exemplary life to date, um, you know, trying to convince the jury to spare his life. Um, Bauer, there was a bit of a controversy because Bauer did not testify, but Frankly, I think after the lies he told, and the lies were never cited as being part of the evidence against him. Mm-hmm. Um, but after the lies that he told, putting him on the stand would have been a horrible idea for any attorney because he would have his credibility on the stand would be destroyed based on the false statements he gave. Because the question becomes, were you lying then or are you lying now? Right. You know, you're going to lie that he's not worthy of belief. Now, apparently, his attorney, before his trial, he did tell his attorney that he did buy the plane, that he paid $3,000, and that he left the IOU for $1,500. That the reason he lied to FBI and the reason he destroyed the plane was he didn't want his wife to catch him. Because she had said, you will have an ultralight plane over my dead body Mm -hmm. at one point. And so, but that doesn't make any sense. Why would you pay $3,000 and owe somebody another $1,500 and then you would hide part of the plane in a field and then you would take a sledgehammer to what's left of the plane that you've just paid $3,000 for. And I think had they tried to use that, had he tried to testify and use that in his defense, I Uh think that the prosecution would have pretty easily proven that Bauer never took $3,000 out of the bank that $3,000 never left his hands, and they've got the fact that $3,000 was not found on Bob Tate's body. And Uh if Bauer was telling the truth, $3,000 and an IOU should have been found on Bob Tate's body. I think what happened is Bauer got wind of the business card found in Bob Tate's pocket, so he made up a lie about leaving an IOU on his business card. Because if the business card said Lester Bauer, 
he would have been the first fucking person they talked to in October. Right. Absolutely. So that makes sense. I, you know, I don't see the IOU fifteen hundred dollars. That would have been the first person they'd go talk to. Right. Because they would found have it on a dead body. Reason. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Bauer appealed. Um, he raised twelve issues on appeal, and more likely than not, they were all kind of intertwined. Um, I can only really get like three or four out. I think he raised the sufficiency of the evidence because the case was entirely circumstantial, but it was strong circumstances. So that pretty much was dealt with very quickly by the Court of Criminal Appeals. He raised an argument regarding the search warrant, and he did challenge the search warrant at trial because in his attorney's review or his attorney's opinion, um, the FBI agent who looked in the garage window had to stand on his tippy toes Uh to do so. And therefore, nothing in the garage was in plain sight. And therefore, the warrant was invalid because it was a, the what they observed in the garage was basis part of the basis for probable cause. Um, but there's perhaps it's Texas because it's Texas. There's basically a law that when you are approaching a person's house. If you can look in a window and see what's going on inside that house because there's no curtains, you're not doing anything wrong. And that they found that the the police were lawfully present on the cartilage surrounding the residence so they had plain view of the evidence stored in the detached garage. Um, They also found that there was uh, the allegations in the affidavit were sufficient to show probable cause or probability that evidence was located in the residence under either state or federal constitutional standards. Uh-huh. They also found the affidavit was sufficiently specific in describing the property to be seized and that Bowers' other claimed errors were waived because he didn't raise them in his challenge to the warrant at the trial court. And, you know, it's a very important principle that you have to give the trial court a chance to address the issues. So when you go to the appeals court, you can't bring up new, you know, you've done some research and you found a case that helps you immensely, but you didn't tell the trial court about it. So the trial court never had the opportunity to, you know, decide based on that, that, uh, angle. Then he raised an error, uh, a complaint about closing argument of the prosecutor because the prosecutor made a comment, you know, about the jury observing him during the trial and he hasn't shown any remorse and he lied to the investigators and how horrible that was. And um, basically, I think that was during the punishment phase. So you know, how cold-blooded the murders were and and how Bauer was not taking responsibility for them. And to Bauer's counsel, that was an effort to comment on his failure to testify. 
And while some of the prosecutor's comments did cross that line, the judge admonished the jury, and the appellate court found that that was sufficient to cure any any error. Um, uh-huh. There were other statements that were raised that the appellate court found did not rise to the level of improper comment. Right. And then finally, um, while uh, Bauer's case was on appeal, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case called Penry, dealing okay. with mitigation evidence in a capital murder case. Basically, Penry presented evidence in mitigation about the nightmare background that he had uh, as a young child living in the family in the household that he was living in. And he was sentenced to death in spite of that. And he was able to argue that the Texas law at the time did not enable the jury to find in his favor and give him mercy based on that mitigation evidence. Uh-huh. Um, and we'll look at Penry at some point. It's just hard for me to look at that one because it's gone on for a very, very long time, and it's very, very, very complicated. Um, but perhaps when we have a couple of weeks off, I'll take the time and and be able to go through and and get it on the schedule. Okay. Um, I may even research it in advance so that I don't have as much to do uh, prior to the prior to the date of the episode. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, with the court of criminal appeals found basically that because Bauer's evidence didn't deal with facts and mitigation that would lessen his culpability, such as mental illness or abuse or a nightmare childhood, that Henry really didn't apply. Okay. Um, They also denied his claim uh, regarding death qualification of a jury um, he basically said it wasn't fair that jurors who oppose the death penalty under any circumstances could not serve on his jury. And basically, the appellate court said that's the way it is. <laughs> and that's the way it's going to stay. Um, and then he made a claim that his jury uh, at his trial was not representative of the community but the Court of Criminal Appeals found that you're entitled to a jury panel or veneer that represents a cross-section of the community. But that doesn't necessarily apply to the petite jury, which is the jury of 12 that ultimately is chosen to sit for the trial. Right. Um, So that was uh, his conviction and sentence were both affirmed in 1989. And um, he filed a state post-conviction claim, which likely raised most of the same claims and likely expanded on the Penry claim. 
uh, and that there's no real information about what those claims were, but relief was denied by the Court of Criminal Appeals, and I believe it was denied by the trial court. And that occurred in, in December of 1991. In 1992, Bauer moved on to the federal court, and for the first time, he alleged actual innocence. Uh, during the period between his conviction and the filing of his writ of federal habeas corpus, he had turned up some witnesses who claimed to have heard confessions of the real killers to uh, of the murders of Bob Tate, Philip Good, Jerry Brown, and Randall Mace, uh-huh. who claimed that they were four drug enforcers who went down to Sherman for a drug deal gone wrong or a drug hit. And it's not entirely clear which it was. Um, And that during the course of this hit, they stole the plane. Now, again, part of that is based on the allegation that little Lester Bauer, one little guy that he was, could not have possibly killed four people, including two, one a former police officer, and one a current law enforcement officer as a sheriff's deputy. However, if the sequence of events was he met with Tate, he killed Tate. Good showed up, he killed Good. Brown and May showed up, he kills Brown, and then he has to, you know, engage Mays in a little bit of battle before finally killing him, then, you know, hey, that's four victims by one person, easy peasy. Because the only one that was really a tough one was Mays. Um, right. But, you know, they, they have four killers for four victims because that's always easier. Um, the witnesses testified at a federal hearing. And basically, one of the witnesses claimed to be the girlfriend of one of the real killers and claimed to have heard a confession from him and a confession from or him and another killer, the other, one of the other real killers, discussing the murder. Um, this woman had prior forgery convictions. Forgery is a crime involving moral turpitude because it's a lie. Um, and a lot of her, a lot of her testimony was contradicted by the evidence. For example, Bauer was saying he legitimately bought the ultralight. There was right. only one ultralight in that hangar, so the four real killers could not have stolen the ultralight. But that yeah, was a exactly. huge feature of all her testimony. In fact, one of her allegations was that the ultralight was disposed of in Arkansas. Oh wow. So, uh, and then there was a, a witness from NA who claimed that uh, who was there basically to vouch for witness number one that she told him these things years ago. Uh, he also claimed to have known one of the victims, although it never said who. Uh-huh. And um, I think it knew, that knew him because of drug involvement. But again. The claims and the rumors about drug involvement among one or all of the victims 
were never corroborated or substantiated right. during the investigation. Um, in September of 2002, the federal district court denied relief. Uh, in a 71-page opinion, analyzed the you know the real killer's theories, all of the information that had been brought by Bauer as far as quote new evidence of his actual innocence, and just found that it did not negate the evidence that proved Bauer's guilt. Right, exactly. And it was none of it was corroborated. I mean, none of these witnesses. These four guys, there were no unknown fingerprints because where there wasn't any evidence linking Bauer, there was never any evidence linking any of these four guys who all had criminal records. Right. Uh, and I'm not going to say their names. They were they were named by like pseudonyms. One name, Bear, came up. Uh, right. Another guy was Lynn. I can't remember the other two. Um, but anyway, the federal court did grant a COA to um, on the Penry claims, which are the mitigation claims, the issues. Right. Uh, and that was also granted by the Fifth Circuit in 2005. And okay. then in 2007, the Fifth Circuit affirmed and basically found that the, again, because Bauer's mitigation evidence was not such that would lessen his culpability that he really didn't meet the criteria of Penry. And um, so sorry, that beep in the background is my sister calling me. uh, And I'm just going to um, let it go. Although we may take a break so I can give her a call in a little bit. You're fine. Um, Anyway, so the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal denied, affirmed the district court in 2007. An execution okay. date was set on July 22nd, 2008. Right. Uh, of course, after that happened, then Bauer filed a Chapter 64 DNA request. Right. And his execution was stayed for that as well as the um, fact that he did file a subsequent writ. Okay. With the state court. And again, he alleged actual innocence. He alleged a Brady violation because he obtained FOIA material from the FBI, which he claimed undermined the state's allegations regarding the Fiocchi ammunition at trial and the use of a 22 caliber weapon and whether... Oh, and another piece of evidence that I forgot to mention mm-hmm. is that Bauer possessed a 22 caliber revolver consistent with the type of weapon that was used okay. in the murders. Uh-huh. He claimed that he had a kidney stone attack and left that gun on a mountain in Colorado. Oh, dear God. Okay. And he lied to the uh, police or investigators about ever having a 22 caliber revolver. So first off, he said he left it in on a mountain in Colorado. No. First he said, off, he lied and said, oh, no, I've never had a 22 caliber. I've never had a 22 caliber pistol. Okay. Um, 
And then they found out because he had a gun dealer's license, they found that he had purchased and sold himself a 22 caliber Ruger pistol. So then mm-hmm. they and confronted him with the fact that they discovered him in that lie. And then he said, oh, well, I, okay, I had kidney stones and I left it on a mountain in Colorado. I don't know anybody okay. who would leave a pistol. I mean, if you had to dump things while you're camping, the pistol is the last thing you're going to dump. Yeah, exactly. If you have a stove, you'll dump the stove. If you right. have a tent, you'll dump the tent. That's you're not going to dump a freaking pistol That's in the mountains special. of Colorado. Yeah. So anyway, um, and then, of course, he was re-raising the Penry claim um, to try and argue it again um, from a different angle. Uh, basically, that the jury charge was inadequate to allow the jury to give any weight to his mitigating evidence. Um, there was also some sort of grand jury proceeding in 2009. Uh, I don't know what all that was about. I just saw reference to it in a uh-huh. state court trial court opinion. And apparently the witnesses, his actual innocence witnesses, testified at that grand jury hearing. Huh. Okay. And then the state court held an evidentiary hearing. Um, now, again, we'll talk about it a little bit later. Um, the uh, impression you're given from people like Jordan Smith and the people at Execution Watch is that the judges just decided these witnesses are drug users, these witnesses are not believable, they're not credible. But in reality, there's the 71-page federal opinion analyzing all of the witness testimony on Bauer's actual innocence claim. And then there's a 80 or maybe 100-page trial court opinion analyzing all of the evidence brought forward by Bauer at the 2012 evidentiary hearing. Uh-huh. And that is not they it didn't just say well they're not credible cuz they they use drugs they're not credible cuz you know they um i don't want them to be there were a lot of reasons behind the judges deciding that the witnesses weren't offering testimony that proved Bauer was actually innocent right. now one of the problems was witness number 1 for example signed an affidavit in 1989 testified in 2000 at the federal hearing, was interviewed by a newspaper in 2008, testified at the grand jury proceedings in 2009, and then state hearing in 2012. And during the course of that testimony, she gave inconsistent statements or gave statements that were contradicted by evidence, such as there was only one ultralight aircraft, which Bauer's position was now, that he bought the plane. Okay. Um, And so uh, witness number four, he met with witness number one at an N.A. meeting, and she told him about these four killers. And he had told the N.A. meeting in 1984, sometime after uh, Bauer's trial, that he knew one of the victims, but he doesn't identify which one. So that's not helpful. Um, Yeah. 
And then there was a sheriff from Oklahoma named Sheriff Eisenberg who uh, testified that all of the men named by witness number one had bad reputations and were involved in drugs. Uh-huh. Um, then they had Bowers investigators who basically investigated and corroborated, corroborated witness number one's statements about the history of the four men and thereby confirmed also the sheriff's information. But they okay. didn't develop any evidence of guilt or any evidence placing those individuals in Sherman, Texas on October 8, 1983. Right. You've done uh, absolutely nothing kinda, but say that these people are bad people. Yeah. And then a guy by the name of Donahue uh, claimed to have had to have heard a confession from a guy named Bear. Uh-huh. And then there were a few other witnesses. Uh, and then the, the claim regarding the FOIA materials, which said there were drug rumors uh, that testified that Fiocchi ammunition had been sold at gun shows in the Dallas area and that Fiocchi ammunition was not just used to kill people. It was relatively quiet, so you could use it to get rid of vermin, like rats and possums and crap like that. Mm-hmm. Um Trial court decision in December of 2012 uh, denied release on the actual innocence claim because of inconsistent or statements contradicted by evidence. Uh, And, you know, like one of the things, some of the things witness number one said didn't make sense. One of the things she said was that on October 9th, they were driving from somewhere in Texas back to Oklahoma. And when they went through Sherman, the guy, Lynn, pulled over. One of her stories was that he pulled over, he made her drive, and he laid down in the back seat and hit and told her because they had been there the day before and they killed four people. Okay, that makes no sense because at that time, police were not looking for four people. Police didn't know who they were looking for. And more likely than not, a car with Oklahoma plates driving through Sherman would not have raised anybody's Any eyebrows, antenna, or suspicion. Exactly. Right. Um, one of the other problems, witness number one had a forgery conviction. She was a drug user and at one time had lived in a house where they were cooking meth. Uh, witness number four had no firsthand information. He was basically there to say, witness number one told me about this guy confessing and witnessing this, and these were the guys that really killed the four guys in, in Sherman in 1983. Um, the court also found that corroboration of the bad reputations of the four men named by witness number one doesn't prove that they committed murder. Right. And isn't it funny... We hear this when they're advocating for the person who's about to be executed or the person who's doing time in prison that, well, just because he had a bad reputation doesn't mean he's a killer. True. Good point. But when they're pointing the finger at somebody else, the bad reputation is all it takes. Right, right. Very you look good at point. Terry Hobbs. I mean – 
there's no evidence that ties Terry Hobbs, but he's, you know, a, a suspect de jour because he's got a bad reputation. Right. Um, Very good point. Donahue was a meth user as well. Some of his statements were inconsistent. And then the court also found that the defense attorney had access to the FOIA information based on his defense notes, which talked about the drug rumors. But he made the strategic decision not to bring those out too heavily. I think he did cross-examine some witnesses about those allegations, but you have to tread a fine line if you're going to accuse a victim of being a criminal during a murder trial. Um, And unless there's some corroborating information, you really need to tread very, very lightly on it. Um, Also, the the claim about the Fiocchi ammunition, again, he knew when it was available, how it was available. That was not – and that doesn't really – it doesn't really contradict the state's evidence about the ammunition because none of the FOIA materials said it was available at Walmart, at at Oshman's, at any of the sporting goods stores in the country. Right. You know, the the dealer, the United States dealer was the only game in town. Now, if people bought the ammunition and then as licensed dealers sold the ammunition at gun shows, that doesn't make it more readily available than, you know, what was found with it being available through one source. Right. Um, the trial court did grant Bowers Penry claims regarding his sentencing and did order a new sentencing hearing. Uh, but unfortunately for Bauer, the Court of Criminal Appeals, this was a writ, a state writ, and basically the Court of Criminal Appeals had the final word. They did not find that the reversal of the sentencing was uh, legally correct. And so they reversed and affirmed denial and denied relief on the Penry claim. Uh huh. So then Bauer's execution date was set for February 10th, 2015. And also, Apparently, the DNA evidence came out, but it was not helpful to Bauer. There was nothing that exonerated Bauer. Uh, There was nothing that conclusively inculpated Bauer. It was just a wash. Okay. So um, that was uh, the outcome of the DNA evidence. Okay. So Bauer had filed an appeal of the TCCA claim, uh, the second state writ, with the United States Supreme Court. So the United States Supreme Court went ahead and granted a stay of execution. Okay. At the same time, Bauer filed a request for a successive writ on his Penry claim at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, 
he filed a Rule 60B motion in the U.S. District Court asking the U.S. District Court to look at the Fenry claim again. So is this where we're getting the Hail Mary and... Is this where we're getting the Hail Mary? These, the these were the Hail Marys, yeah. These were the okay. Hail Marys. And another interesting thing, I know Bauer claimed six or seven execution dates, uh-huh. but I only two. found mention of actually basically three. Three. He yeah, had the 2008 date, which was stayed. He had the February date that was stayed. And then he had the June 3rd date, which was given after uh, the U.S. Supreme Court denied his writ and the stay they granted expired. And then the right. prosecution went back to the trial court and a new, a new execution date was granted on the 25th uh-huh. of March. Okay. The Fifth Circuit denied his request to file a successive writ. The district in January actually denied the 60B motion, and um, so all of his claims were unsuccessful. Now, as you saw on the execution watch video, um, uh-huh. the picture and and read in Jordan Smith's article, I'm sure, is that the witnesses were all credible and that they had evidence that one or all of the victims were involved in drug dealing and that their murders were the result of a drug hit or a drug deal gone bad. Because I don't well, think I they mean, could ever quite land right on one or the though. other because they're, really, they're not really interchangeable. That's right out of the playbook, though. Like, you freaking hit Rodney doing the same thing today. Like, it's one of those things right. where you're, until they know they're going to die, they're not going to admit guilt. That's why I always love how people are like, well, he maintained his innocence until he was executed. Motherfucker, you think I'm going to admit? You know what I mean? Like, come on now. Well, he, some, I mean, Bauer never, Bauer never thing. admitted his guilt. Right. Bauer never true. admitted his guilt. True. But I'm saying if you they know. are going to admit it, they're not going to admit it till the end. Yeah. And, and no, they're not going to admit it. Very rarely do they ever admit it. Right. Um, and, you know, then they argue one man couldn't kill four people. Uh, they claim the ammunition was not as unusual or rare as the prosecution's claim, which was a straw man, because that wasn't what the FOIA materials proved. And the court, again, the state trial court, Examine that claim. It it looked at what the FOIA material showed, uh-huh. and it found information consistent with what was in the FOIA materials and the defense notes taken in 1983-1984. So the defense was aware of everything that was in the FOIA materials. Huh. Okay. Um. And then uh, Bauer changed his story because the denial, absolute denials didn't work for him. He changed the story and claimed that he bought the plane and the victims were fine when he left. And that the only reason he lied, explaining, I lied because I didn't want my wife to find out I bought the plane. Uh Uh-huh. 
Um, so, you know, I really, I, again, if you didn't do anything, there's no reason for you to lie. You don't lie to hide something from your wife when you're talking to police. And if, if you think that's the way you should roll, don't do it. Because right. when you lie to police, it looks very, very, very bad for you, especially when they very easily prove that what you said was a lie. Yeah, I completely agree there. So, um, and what was one of the, I thought of one of the other things. I didn't have it on the, on the, um, on the thing, but, um, oh, well, too bad. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what were some of the other, what were some of the other claims that kind of struck you? I mean. Or made you think that he was, he was innocent. I'll tell you the honest goodness truth. A lot of this I read, and I'm just like, meh. Um, there was another article here by uh, Mark Berman as well from the Washington Post. But a lot of this, it was just very, I don't know. He didn't do a good enough job, in my opinion, of giving me, I call it that moment where I go, hmm. And I never had a moment with him where I went, hmm, maybe, maybe this sounds like I could potentially believe it. I never had that moment with him because a lot of what he was saying just, a lot of what he said and what he did just never, I'm not going to say it didn't add up, but it's, like stuff like lying to your wife because lying about it because your wife like that's one of those things that I'm just like, bro. Like, I roll my eyes at this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing hard there where I'm like, oh snap, I have a hard time disbelieving that. You know, kind of like the uh, the beer cans with Rodney. Remember when we first yeah. met, I was like, well, that's interesting. You know, that, that gives me pause to think. There was nothing that he did that made me think that, in my opinion. Okay. That's just right. my thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't get a chance. I didn't really read Jordan Smith's article. I kind of glanced through it, and, of course, it – you know, they make the case for innocence seem stronger than it is. And it really does a disservice. Right. Like because I when said, you look at, when you look at the two opinions, I mean, they're very long opinions. Right. It, and it's a situation where literally I never had a moment where I thought, oh, snap, is this guy innocent? I, I didn't. Um there's not much to what they do as far as there's not much actual concrete evidence, but there's never anything that made me think, okay, Texas killed an innocent man, in my opinion. And that's just my opinion. Okay. If anybody else is welcome to theirs, but that's just my thoughts on it. Okay. All right. I'm a little surprised. Yeah. I mean, just like I said, there's, so much that I don't know. 
like, yes, I guess I could ride with the bullets, maybe, if they were really that rare, but, I, or if they weren't that rare, but, you know, I, there was nothing really that I saw that made me pause, I guess I should say. Right. Right. So, um... And by the way, so, yeah, this is I, another one of those. This is another one of those cases to those people that say Texas kills people too quickly. Eighty-three to 2015. Come on now. Thirty-one years, and that's yeah. that's what I wanted. That was one of the other things he raised, kind of peripherally in the media, the claim that he's been on death row for 31 years, and it's so you know cruel and unusual. Um, for him to have been on 30, 31 years waiting to be killed. Oh, good And, um, you know, but he pursued. And to that I say, would you rather have been During that waiting? time. I mean, you know, hey, you don't want to be on. His first execution date was 2008. Right. I mean, and even that is because a long time. You know, yes, his direct appeal, he was convicted in 84. His direct appeal took about five years. His state post-conviction was pretty quick, two years. His federal post-conviction was 10 years. But he was making actual innocence claims. He wanted a hearing. He got a hearing, and he's lucky he was convicted before EDPA. Right. Because he would never have gotten a hearing with EDPA. I just, I just, you know, like stuff like that where you say he cruel and unusual punishment. I'm like, bro, you caused that cruel and unusual punishment. Nobody in their right, right. mind is going to give you a stay based upon that. That makes no sense. Like, basically what you're telling me is we should have killed him quicker. Um, well, I mean, he had, you know, he had his, I think that they should, um, I don't think he, he had his avenues that he pursued. Uh-huh. He should not complain that it took, you know, it, he shouldn't complain that it took 10 years for USDC. He should be grateful. Because... Exactly, because during that 10 years, Texas could not set an execution date for him. Bro, you got an extra 31 years on your life that you probably shouldn't have gotten. Yeah, so, um, you know, if you had somebody who didn't pursue any appeals, and then it took 30 years for them to ever set a date. Well, then, yeah, yeah, I could see. Yeah, I could I could get behind saying, okay, you know what? You've held him there. Let's commute his sentence. Let him just do life in prison. Right. Uh, but this was not a case of a guy, you know, just waiting to see what was going to happen. He no. was pursuing his he he was pursuing relief. He was pursuing his arguments, and none of them worked out for him. He's basically, he's basically, from what I'm gathering with that, saying, yo, I, I'm mad that it took you too, so long to tell me I was wrong. Right. 
also. Uh, and I'll have to find there was an interesting case where um, someone did actually raise it, and the U.S. Supreme Court denied relief, but one of the judges wrote a memorandum uh-huh. about how audacious it was for these attorneys to raise the length of time to execute someone when that someone has filed writ after writ after claim after claim. Right. In order to avoid being executed. Exactly. Exactly. um, So Bauer was executed on June 3rd, 2015. Now he is on the list of innocent but executed. Yeah, well, let me roll my eyes on that one. So, um, and, you know, again, the the Bauer and the Execution Watch folks made it sound as though the witnesses were just dismissed because they used drugs. 71 pages for the federal court opinion, which analyzed their testimony and their statements against, and, and I think the problem is, as with Rodney Reed, People on the innocent side expect the court to take those allegations, only look at those allegations, and say, oh, he's really innocent. Let's let him go. But what happens is they look at those allegations and they compare. How do those allegations, do they line up with the evidence at his trial? They don't think and it's the media, fair whenever somebody can dispute those allegations or, like you said, if it even provides exculpatory evidence. Right. And a lot of times, too, what the media represents the evidence showing and what the evidence actually shows are two different things. They're right. You know, I mean, I constantly see the claims – with Rodney Reed, that there's evidence proving Jimmy Finnell killed Stacy. That is so untrue. Right. It's absolutely false. There is no evidence that all the evidence, the DNA evidence, puts Rodney Reed at the crime scene, puts Rodney right. Reed with Stacy's body. None of it puts Jimmy with Stacy's body. Right. Um, and in this case, they looked at, you know, they looked at Witness One's allegations and her allegations did not line up with the evidence. And her allegations, most of them were refuted by the actual evidence. Yeah. And so, you know, that's because you have to, if you're going to prove actual innocence, you have to present evidence that refutes or lines up with what the state found. And, that's another thing is that media, people like Jordan Smith are fond of saying the state's case has been destroyed when in reality, no court has ever found the state's case has been destroyed. In fact, no court has found the state's case to even be slightly dented. Hey, Lisa, just a quick question. How often is this page updated? What page? The death penalty info. Um, I'm not sure. Why? Well, it's just, it's interesting to me because one of the names, as soon as you said the, about the uh, 
innocence but executed, I started scrolling. One of the names that I'm surprised is not here is uh, Liddell. I'm surprised they well, haven't jumped that, on that. Uh, they may not have uh, done that yet. I'm surprised they didn't do it in 20. I'm surprised they didn't do it in 2017 after he was executed. Right. Because all the allegations that he made and that his family's making now are the ones he made to try and get DNA testing before his execution. Which, I mean, at the end of the day, we talked about it earlier. It doesn't exculpate Mr. Uh, Lee. It just, if anything, it makes him look worse. My well, my understanding is there is there was unknown profile found on the murder weapon. Right, but it doesn't but again. Liddell Lee's case goes back to 1993, before touch DNA, and therefore before evidence handling protocols that said you wear gloves and masks and you know, do everything you can to avoid putting a scintilla of DNA on a piece of evidence. Uh huh. Um, so all it takes is one person touching that thing between the time it was initially examined by the Arkansas State Crime Lab and the time it was examined for DNA testing. And right. we're going to talk about a case where. Uh, Robert Pruitt in Texas, there was a claim that he was actually innocent, and they got Uh DNA testing, and they found unknown DNA. Problem is, it was unknown female DNA. He was in a he was on death row for murder in a men's prison as a male guard or a male CO, and uh, the the DNA was female, and they the state was somehow able to produce video of a female producer with a BBC handling the evidence on which the female DNA was found ungloved. Right. So um, that kind of, you know, ruined that. So that, and it's unknown. It didn't match their alternate suspect. And, and it's also, we talked about this with uh, Jason Anderson. If they don't have a reference sample for a police officer, an evidence technician, a juror, an attorney, a prosecutor, that unknown profile could belong to somebody not related to the murders. It's not yeah. like the profile, they put it in a CODIS and it and it popped on another rapist and serial killer. Right. Uh, and then the, there's apparently, there's a t-shirt and there's, uh, an unknown male profile on it as well. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing that's unclear is whether these two unknown male profiles are from the same individual or whether they're different profiles. Right. Um, so that is one of the things that's not clear. And that's why I would like to see the reports that say, because if they're un if they're two profiles from two different people, odds are they are the result of contamination of the evidence during the interim between 1993 and the DNA testing in 2020. 
Well, exactly. Um, Good Lord they, knows how much that evidence has been touched. They also, uh, as I understand it, a hair, they did mitochondrial DNA testing, and that hair did not exclude Liddell Lee, and that was one of the right. hairs found at the crime scene. Uh, and it may have been the hair, one of the hairs originally microscopically consistent with Liddell Lee. Well, so basically, the, the microscopic finding in 1993 has now been confirmed by DNA. Right. And like I said, you know, the whole situation with, you know, making them look worse, like the, 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 the blood on the, uh, on the shoes that could have been, uh, that possibly, I think, I don't think they said it was confirmed but possibly uh, could belong to Deborah Reese. I mean, that makes it even worse. Like, that's Yeah, the, as I understand the results, it did not, it did not conclusively link De, uh, Deborah Reese, but it did not exclude Deborah Reese. Right, exactly. So that makes it, you take, you, you take a minor win for a major loss, in my opinion. Correct. And Jacksonville was right. I remember whenever, I think it was 2018 or 19, whenever they announced that they would do the DNA testing, me and you talked about it. And I believe me and you were both like, well, why? And now, you know, Jacksonville looks like they're really smart for doing it because they just, in my opinion, tightened everything. Well, I I think that they actually, I think it was a mistake because it's inconclusive. The innocent people will claim that as big. And the innocent people are going to misuse. They're going to use those two unidentified DNA profiles, and they're going to say, see, it's the murder weapon, and Liddell Lee's DNA isn't on it. Right. They're also saying that you can't trust the, the mitochondrial DNA. So I think they made a mistake unless they push this to a hearing where a judge determines that the results do not exculpate Lee. It's going to be a problem. Right, right. Absolutely. So I would suggest that the city of Jacksonville uh, and the individuals who have been named in a lawsuit, a wrongful death suit by Lee's family, that they follow through with their motion to dismiss and bring these DNA evidence results into, or DNA testing results into the uh, into the case and put that before that judge. Brian. So... Um, so yeah, anyway, so that's Lester Bauer. He was executed on June 3rd. I didn't find seven, six or seven execution dates. I found three. Right. Me either. So, uh, I think that was a hyperbole and, uh, dramatiza- dramatization to make it seem like poor Lester had been badly done for. Yeah. By spending 31 years on death row. Right. Um, so, uh, in fact, I, I might go to Execution Watch's website and look and see how many times Bauer's name appears. 
because I think their site goes back to 2005 or 2004. So, um, yeah, so that is our episode for June 1st, 2021. Woo! That was a good episode. Yay! Like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we, I'm glad we, uh, can pretty much agree on this one. It, it, it's just, it, this is one that seems kind of cut and dry to me. Maybe because you got to me before I watched anything. I don't know. But yeah, it seems, it seems like a lot of BS. I think you've been around me too long. Uh, so maybe. now you've got a BS meter. <laughs> right. And so you don't just believe everything, everything and, and you're. And I think you're starting to think about, does it make sense? Right. And if it doesn't make sense, then it's probably not true. Absolutely. So, so I'm I'm sitting here patting myself on the back. <laughs> I've grown. <laughs> so, all right. Well, let's put a bow on this one and go back to our Saturday. Let's do it. And uh, and I w- thank you for you know making yourself available to do this. It's a little different, um, but it's happen. something we may oh. think about doing in the future. Maybe not every episode, but every now and then, recording yeah. an episode and having a Tuesday off. Yeah, absolutely. Might be nice. Something to think about. Yeah, um, absolutely. So. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us on Tuesday, June 8, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 13, State of Illinois versus Shan Fieldman and Tanya Fonts. In 2010, Fieldman and Fonts cooked up a scheme to kill Fieldman's ex-wife. When Fieldman climbed into the cab of a pickup truck in a Walmart parking lot, he thought he was meeting with a hitman. In reality, he was meeting with a police officer who was recording every word he said. At trial, Fieldman tried to negate intent by claiming that he only went through with the meeting because he was afraid of the middle woman. We'll talk about the evidence against Fieldman, his trial, appeals, and his recent success in the U.S. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeal. We'll also talk about his co-defendant, Talia Fonts, whose conviction and sentence remain valid. Until then, have a great week and stay safe.